Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present David Swanson, campaign coordinator with RootsAction.org, who examines how President Biden's recent airstrikes in Syria could jeopardize talks on the U.S. rejoining the International Iran Nuclear Agreement. Loretta J. Ross, visiting associate professor of the study of women and gender at Smith College, who talks about her recent article titled The Nazification of the Republican Party, and Adrian Huck, a member of the New Haven Climate Movement Youth Action Team, who discusses the direct impact militarism has on the climate crisis. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A month after the military coup in Myanmar deposed the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi, tens of thousands of protesters remain in the streets, and the junta is on the defensive. The United States and the European Union have imposed sanctions, while Facebook has banned Myanmar's generals and their business affiliates from the social media platform. Indonesia is leading an initiative among members of the Association of Southeast Asia Nations to negotiate an end to the standoff between Myanmar's military junta and the Burmese people seeking a return of Aung San Suu Kyi's National League of Democracy government, which decisively won elections in November last year. Police launched their most sweeping crackdown against pro-democracy protesters in towns and cities across Myanmar on February 27th. The recent violence erupted after Myanmar's United Nations envoy, saying he was speaking for the ousted civilian government, urged the UN to use any means necessary to reverse the February 1st coup. Years before this winter's deep freeze that left millions of Texans without power, heat, and water, electric utility companies crashed in the face of extreme cold temperatures in both 2011 and 2014. The federal report on the winter storm a decade earlier concluded power and natural gas companies had not hardened their facilities for cold weather, including installing extra insulation, windbreaks, or heaters. Such vulnerabilities continue as the voice of residential consumers is drowned out by utility company lobbyists and lawyers. ProPublica reports failure to reform the Texas power grid operator ERCOT resulted in repeatedly ignored, dismissed, and watered-down efforts to address weaknesses in the state's sprawling electric grid, which is isolated from the rest of the U.S., in order to avoid federal regulation. This year's winter storms that battered the state for nearly seven consecutive days resulted in dozens of deaths. For the past two decades, consumer groups have fought without success for a larger role in how the state manages its power grid. Randall Chapman, a Texas ratepayer attorney and longtime consumer advocate, asserted giving residents a stronger presence on the ERCOT board would have forced the agency to take the lessons of extreme winter storms in 2011 and 2014 more seriously. Longtime Chicago reformer and Latino activist Jesus Choi Garcia gained the spotlight in 2015 in challenging Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel with the backing of the Chicago Teachers Union and other progressives. 
Garcia lost the runoff election but won the backing of Senator Bernie Sanders. Four years later, Garcia was elected to a seat in Congress and went to work advocating for a progressive agenda as an ally of U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the three other original members of the squad. He worked with the squad and other progressives like Representative Ro Khanna in introducing the Reward Work Act that would ban unjustified stock buybacks and would mandate that every listed corporation enable employees to elect one-third of their company's board of directors. Local Chicago activists say Garcia can be counted on to take progressive stands when pushed, citing his initial hesitancy to publicly support Medicare for All. Unlike many congressional progressives, Choi is a proud internationalist, out front on issues of global finance, and pushing back against hawkish U.S. foreign policy around the world. The squad continues to grow with new allies that include Garcia, Khanna, and House members Raul Grijalva, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, Jan Schakowsky, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Barbara Lee, Pramila Jayapal, and Mark Pocan. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In the first confirmed military action ordered during his presidency, Joe Biden authorized the February 25th bombing of what the Pentagon said were Iranian-backed militia groups in Syria. The airstrikes, we were told, were in retaliation for a rocket attack on Erbil, Iraq's airport on February 15th that killed a Filipino contractor working with the U.S. military coalition and wounded six others, including a National Guard soldier and four American contractors. Iran condemned the U.S. strikes as illegal and a violation of Syria's sovereignty and denied responsibility for rocket attacks on American targets in Iraq. The London-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reports at least 22 people died in the U.S. attack. The Pentagon's press secretary said the U.S. airstrike was meant to punish the perpetrators of the rocket attack, but not escalate hostilities with Iran with which President Biden has sought to open talks to rejoin the international nuclear agreement that Donald Trump withdrew from in 2018. Some Democratic lawmakers questioned Biden's decision to launch military action without congressional approval. Your reporter spoke with David Swanson, executive director of WorldBeyondWar.org and campaign coordinator with RootsAction.org. Here he examines how Biden's airstrikes could derail planned talks for the U.S. to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal and continue America's endless war policies. Well, I don't think it was the first missile or bomb to fall from the sky uh, by the, <laughs> launched by the United States in Syria or Iraq or certainly Afghanistan since January 20th. Uh, but it was the first to be publicly announced and put out with a press release and a letter to Congress and a letter to the United Nations uh, and numerous comments to the public, uh, including from the president around the idea that he was sending a message to Iran, uh, that this would teach Iran, show Iran not to 
mess around. Assuming the intention was to avoid peace and push the world closer to war, it had the desired results. Otherwise, it didn't. Iran is refusing to negotiate. Iran is headed toward a new government months from now that will have no interest in any negotiations whatsoever. This is a disastrous move in terms of making peace in the world. What the White House does in its statements is claim self-defense, claim compliance with the U.N. Charter, because bombing people in a distant nation uh, in order to send a message to a different nation is self-defense. This is outrageous. It justifies any sort of aggressive attack on anyone on Earth under the pretense that it's self-defense. And you can't find you know, a single Congress member who will even object to the violation of the U.N. Charter. Or if they do, it's sort of a footnote after their long spiel about the need for congressional authorization, which is complete nonsense once you mention the existence of the U.N. Charter. You can't make something legal by authorizing it through Congress. David, I did want to ask you about the Iranian nuclear deal. There was a lot of hope, maybe misguided, but there was a lot of hope when Joe Biden got elected that somehow the U.S. and Iran would reach an agreement to restart or rejoin the international nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, This latest attack on what we're told were Iranian allied militia groups in Syria and uh, the back and forth diplomatically between the two countries doesn't seem to be making uh, much of a difference here in terms of restarting the agreement. What are your concerns going forward about where this may end up? Well, I think it's a perfectly reasonable concern that it may end up in a major war, you know, that the that the the adding of of women to the to draft registration as a step in feminist progress to give women the right to be forced against their will to go kill and die may be relevant. We may get a bigger war than anybody wants. Uh, I mean, this notion that you can do a proportionate, targeted, surgical, retributive strike tit for tat with another nation. Well, you don't control how others around the world interpret what you do. You can't, you know, control how these things spin out of uh, out of hand. I, I think there is uh, there is every danger uh, that the U.S. government misunderstands the Iranian government. Uh, you know, the sanctions, the massive, brutal, deadly, punishing, illegal under the Geneva Conventions sanctions uh, that have not been lifted against Iran. This is what obsesses the people in Iran and in the region. So you can't say, well, we're just trading missile strikes uh, when you've broken promises, when you've said you were going to lift sanctions, when you've said you were going to rejoin an agreement and you're not rejoining it. Iran is outraged. Most people there are and members of the government as well, and even worse, of the likely next government, are sick and tired of it. Uh, and it's it's incredibly reckless and dangerous, and, and it's a question of not paying enough attention or of actually wanting war. And I think it, it's hard to overestimate the extent to which this has to do with the Saudi relationship, right? You know, that the need by the Biden administration to do something good for the brutal dictators of, of Saudi Arabia on the day when they're announcing Saudi murdered a, uh, a Washington Post reporter, you know, a person who matters, uh, you know, never mind the thousands and thousands of people in Yemen, but, but a Washington Post reporter matters. And this should cease. 
is another broken promise, right? Biden said this relationship with Saudi Arabia would not continue unchanged, but it is. That was David Swanson, an author, activist, journalist, and radio host. He serves as executive director of worldbeyondwar.org and is campaign coordinator with rootsaction.org. Find more analysis and commentary on Biden's recent Syria airstrikes and his administration's foreign policy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The deadly January 6 insurrection that killed five people, including a Capitol Police officer, provoked Donald Trump's second impeachment and an investigation into the individuals and groups that were complicit in the failed attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It's revealing that hours after the storming of the Capitol building, 139 GOP House members and eight Republican senators still voted to challenge the certified state election results that gave Joe Biden a clear victory. The majority of Republican Party politicians and their supporters across the U.S. continue to spread and give credibility to Donald Trump's big lie that massive fraud on a rigged election stole the former president's landslide election victory. What's more concerning is that many Republicans have allied themselves with white supremacists, armed militia groups, and neo-Nazis that now constitute a key base of support for Trump. In congressional testimony on March 2nd, FBI Director Christopher Wray called the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a pro-Trump mob an act of domestic terrorism. Your reporter spoke with Loretta J. Ross, an activist and visiting associate professor of the study of women and gender at Smith College. Here she talks about her recent article titled The Nazification of the Republican Party and the Nation's Response to a Violent Authoritarian Movement that's attempting to overturn American democracy. Well, I've been following the fascist movement in this country since 1990 when I was part of the staff of the National Anti-Klan Network, which was renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal. And it was eye-opening for me in 1990 to find out that the white supremacists had not retrieved it, but they were just in the process of regrouping and coming back. And many of us were trying to warn that there was this subterranean underground taking place with the rise of anti-abortion violence, with the attacks on Jewish people, with the attacks on people of color in general and black people in particular. But we kind of felt like we were chicken little because nobody would listen as we were saying the sky is falling. And so when Trump decided to run for office, I had been vaguely paying attention to Donald Trump, but he wasn't anybody I particularly kept an eye on. But when his campaign started echoing the same things that I was monitoring on the far right now had moved into the mainstream of a Republican campaign, he got my attention in a different way. And so that started me really researching how the Republicans, since they had rebuilt their base in the 1970s by consolidating the people who were opposed to integration with the anti-gay, with the anti-feminist, with the pro-war, with the Christian nationalists, to build a new base. That's why I wrote my article that they've had since the 1970s to scrape these people out of their ranks 
and assume the posture of a respectable political party. And they've chosen not to. And instead of them controlling the fascists, the fascists ended up controlling them. And we're seeing the whole attack and, and, and the dissolution of the Republican Party because they made the same mistake that ordinary Germans made in the 1930s where they thought that they could control the fascists and the fascists ended up controlling the country. And this is what we're, I think, at the risk of seeing repeated. Professor Ross, underscoring what you said, after the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, 139 House members and eight senators voted to overturn the election after the violence. It seems that doubling down on support for authoritarian overthrow of our government, fascism, if you will, is uh, is continuing. It's it's not abating at all. In fact, Donald Trump just spoke at the CPAC convention. Of course, he was uh, wildly cheered on there, and all his racist statements that we're all familiar with were echoed there by many of his acolytes and supporters there's been a lot of uh, discussion in our media about a civil war within the Republican Party, but the pro-Trump side is clearly one, it seems. Well, they've always wanted the people who want this to be a society ruled permanently by white supremacy have always called for a race war. They use the term Rohawa, racial holy war, because this is something that they've desired. But we've never seen it be mainstreamed so much like we saw in the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, that it went from being a crazy idea on the fringe of America to being now mainstream public policy embraced by Republicans elected to Congress and then covered up by senators and Congress people and, matter of fact, encouraged by them. And so this is really showing that we have a fragile democracy. We've got a lot of holes in the process that should have been attended to. Actually, Ulysses S. Grant said this when he when Lincoln was assassinated. He said, we have still not resolved this question of whether or not America is going to be dedicated to liberty or slavery. He said that as he kept dealing with insurrections by the Confederates, who would not give up. And so this has been the ongoing question because we didn't handle the traitors satisfactorily in 1865. It's why they were bold enough to bring a Confederate flag to the Capitol in 2021. And I love the way the young people talk about it on the internet. They said, you expect black people to get over slavery when white people with the Confederate flags haven't gotten over losing their slaves. This is a still a conversation that we need to have right now in the 21st century about whether or not we want a democracy and what we're going to do to fight for it. That was Loretta J. Ross, an activist and visiting associate professor of the study of women and gender at Smith College. Find a link to Professor Ross's recent article titled The Nazification of the Republican Party by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
the youth of America are stepping up to take leadership roles in many of the social movements that are exploding across the country. In particular, the struggle for racial justice and climate justice have seen even grade school children speaking out. The peace movement, however, seems to lag behind, with the majority of its activist members in many communities from the baby boom generation. But a young woman in New Haven, Connecticut, is breaking that mold. Adrian Huck is a 2020 high school graduate who's now a student at Tufts University pursuing environmental studies. She's also a leader of the youth action team of the New Haven climate movement. When she was invited to sign on to a local referendum calling for cutting the federal military budget and redirecting those funds to human needs, she immediately got involved and joined the New Haven Peace Commission, an official city body. The following is an excerpt of Adrian Huck's talk on the climate crisis and militarism that she presented at the U.S. Money for Human Needs Conference on January 9th. After learning what the federal military budget looks like and how it clearly prioritizes militarism over the quality of life for our residents and, of course, the environment within the U.S., it really became urgent to me that we must mobilize to change our reality and defund the military. The truth is that funding trillions of dollars into the military to wage endless wars and establish dominance has prevented us from investing in true security and services for our people in the U.S. So now I want to go over some really key points about how the climate crisis is related to militarism. So first, the U.S. Department of Defense is the largest single producer of greenhouse gases in the world. So unsurprisingly, the U.S. militarism degrades the environment and contributes directly to climate change. And according to a recent study from Brown University, the U.S. Department of Defense is the world's largest institutional user, user of petroleum. And so correspondingly, it is the single largest producer of greenhouse gases in the world. Next, control over oil causes wars. So oil is the leading cause of war. An estimated one quarter to one half of all wars since 1973 have been linked to oil, and the U.S. is not exempt from fighting wars for oil. The vast military infrastructure around the world is also strategically positioned in oil and resource-rich regions and along shipping lines that keep the fossil fuel economy in operation around the globe. And by far, our greatest militarization has been in the Middle East, where more than half of the world's oil reserves are also located. Also unsurprisingly, military infrastructure and equipment has a huge carbon footprint. So maintaining an expansive military requires significant investment in carbon intensive infrastructure and gas guzzling equipment. And there are 800 US military bases in 90 countries and territories across the globe. And so the associated carbon imprint is tremendous. Of course, the, the act of warfare is carbon intensive. The United States military has emitted more than 1.2 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere since the present era of American conflicts beginning in 2001. All of this definitely ruins the health of the environment and the people that are living there. U.S. military operations wreak havoc on the environments where it rages war. Also, most of the bases store large quantities of weapons, explosives, and other hazardous waste, and nearly all of them contain toxic chemicals. In the United States alone, there are tens of thousands of polluted sites linked to military contamination, 
And that is not even including the toxic legacy that's left behind in sites where there's little accountability or oversight. And an example of that is the burning of military waste in Iraq contributed to a widespread poisoning of the environment and it's linked to elevated rates of cancer and birth defects described as the highest rate of genetic damage to any population ever studied. As we know, we have an overinvestment in military, and that means there's an underinvestment in many, many other social issues, and that includes climate action and humanitarian aid. In 2020, military spending accounted for 54% of all federal discretionary funding, which is a total of $756 billion. And by comparison, the budget only included $2.7 billion for energy efficiency and renewable energy, meaning the military budget in 2020 was 272 times larger than for energy efficiency and renewable energy. Also, for every dollar spent on diplomacy and humanitarian aid in 2020, the US spent $16.65 on the military. And so this underfunding of aid and diplomacy has terrible implications for the climate crisis since it is a global problem and climate justice depends on international cooperation and helping other countries out. And compared to the $6.4 trillion spent on war in the past 20 years, the cost of shifting the US power grid to 100% renewable energy is estimated to cost just $4.5 trillion. So we could have shifted off our country's fossil fuel reliance with money to spare, but instead we chose violence and destruction. Climate change brings along the prospect of even more conflict. So this is somewhat of a feedback loop. Climate chaos in turn leads to massive displacement, militarized borders, and the prospect of further conflict. So to map that out, warfare contributes to climate change, and then the unrest that comes about afterwards can cause even more wars and even more environmental damage. So if we don't transform our society now, we'll face even more injustices and more conflicts in a climate changed future. And lastly, I wanted to tie this into workers' rights. Um, extractive and militarized industries trap and exploit workers. I wanted to make this link because the exploitation of workers is directly tied to the exploitation of our environment. Just as with extractive industries such as the fossil fuel industry, militarized industries such as weapons manufacturing um, create economic dependence. And some communities lack that economic self-determination and unfortunately have their future tied to the well-being of this industry. And the military is the only major federal jobs program in the US. And it has long preyed on low-income people and recruiting people who lack other options or have significant debt and instability. So the climate crisis must also address the absence of jobs that would come about by defunding the military. But luckily, uh, funding a green economy instead of a bloated military budget would be a net job creator. For the same level of spending, clean energy and infrastructure would create 40% more jobs. That was Adrian Huck, a member of the New Haven Climate Movement Youth Action Team and the city's Peace Commission. Learn more about the connections between militarism and the climate crisis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBDY in Binghamton, New York, WDRT in Verroca, Wisconsin, Delmarva FM in Riverton, Maryland, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harrison.